What we do in life echoes in eternity. The movie fans among us will know that uh, famous quote, what we do in life echoes in eternity. It comes from the film Gladiator. Some people know what it is. Yeah, it comes from Gladiator. There he is, uh, Maximus Decimus uh, uh, Meridius from that great film Gladiator. To motivate his troops before they charge into battle in the opening scene of the film, Maximus tells his cavalry to hold the line, fight bravely, even if it means losing your lives. And he ends with those climactic words, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Well, the way our actions can influence our eternities is a theme which runs for our verses tonight in Mark chapter 9. Last week, just as a reminder, we left Jesus at the first half of Mark 9 explaining to his disciples the nature of true greatness for those who would seek to follow him. What does it mean to be a great disciple, a great follower of Jesus? So let's just remind ourselves, in verse 35, Jesus said, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He then took a a little child up in his arms as an example of one who was despised in his own society and said, verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me, his heavenly father. So Jesus is saying true greatness for his followers means serving one another on his behalf, whether culture considers such people important. Or not. And with that lesson still ringing in their ears, we're carrying straight on into verse 38 this evening. And John, one of Jesus' close disciples, makes this statement about another person who was serving others on behalf of Jesus in his name. Look with me in verse 38. John said to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. This guy, this outsider, John tells us, was exercising demons in Jesus' name. They'd seen him conducting that ministry. But Jesus hadn't called this man to be one of his disciples or to exercise spirits. So the disciples had instinctively tried to stop him. No, no, stop what you're doing. But you see what Jesus says in verse 39? Jesus said, do not stop him. Don't stop this guy, Jesus says to his disciples. And it's in his further response to John's statement that we get our first point for this evening. That any service done in Jesus' name leads to reward. Any service done in Jesus' name will lead to reward. Jesus gives his disciples three reasons why they were to allow this outsider, who was not one of them, to continue in his ministry. The first one, because this outsider would not undermine Jesus' name. Would not undermine Jesus' name. Let's carry on in verse 39. Verse 39. Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. See, the disciples, they were concerned that this outsider, because he he wasn't one of them, he would just become harmful competition for them and their ministry. 
He was doing what they and Jesus were doing. He was driving out evil spirits in Jesus' name. A sign that through Jesus, God was working to restore his good order over creation. What we messed up in our sin. And yet this outsider had now started up his own service of deliverance. Surely that would detract from the, uh, the disciples' ministry with Jesus. Not enhance it. But... Jesus isn't threatened by this guy. He tells them, no one who truly serves in my name will undermine it in his next breath. And he he identifies this outsider as one of those genuine servants. And yet, by saying this, he gives the disciples and he gives us as his church a clue as to how we can discern the authenticity of any Christian ministry. Any ministry done in Jesus' name. In the long run, does it serve to honour or undermine that name? So we can ask of any ministry, does it promote Jesus for who he really is? And point others to him. Does it promote faith in Jesus as God's saviour for our sins? The one on whom we as sinners must depend entirely to be forgiven by God for all the ways in which we have failed to honour him as our God, rejected him as the Lord of our lives. Does it promote faith in Jesus as God's risen king? The one who we, as those saved in him, are to live for, to love and obey as those ransomed from sin by his blood. The means by which we come back under the blessing of God's rule again. Does that ministry promote those things? Or does that ministry in question actually undermine Jesus' name rather than serve it? Promote faith in ourselves, our own moral works. Trust in Jesus, but do ABC as well. And God will accept you. Well, that message undermines Jesus' name, for he is the only one. Who can cleanse us of all our sin? It's by depending on him and him alone that we could ever hope to be right before God. Another message that we hear in the church today is receive Jesus and you'll prosper greatly in your health and your wealth in this life. Come to Jesus, you'll be rich. Even though God has not promised such things to us, his church, in his word, not for now. We have received every spiritual blessing in Christ and we look forward to the day when we will be restored to him physically in every way and enjoy the blessing of his rule in that way. But many today in the church, both here in Malaysia and worldwide, believe the lie that those promised blessings are for the here. They're for the now. And so they end up putting their faith not in Jesus, but in the level of their health and their wealth to assure them of whether God is for them or not, whether they're right with him or not, rather than Jesus and his word alone. Again, that message of prosperity denies Jesus. It undermines his name. But Jesus knows that this outsider that the disciples are trying to hinder, well, he does not belong to that group. He is genuine. He is serving for the sake of Jesus' name. And so he will not undermine it in the course of his ministry. 
Neither will any genuine ministers of Jesus who seek to minister for the sake of his gospel. So that's the first reason. He will not undermine Jesus' name. But secondly, the disciples aren't to stop this guy because, verse 40, Jesus continues, The one who is not against us is for us. The one who is not against us is for us. This guy had a role to play in supporting the work of Jesus and his disciples. Service means supporting the work of Jesus and his apostles. Now, when playing uh, football at school, when I rarely did, when I was younger, I I always wanted to be picked as one of the strikers, you know, the upfront guys that actually score the goals. Back in that time in school, you want to be cool, you want to be the guy who's in in the limelight, getting all the glory. And the guys who were scoring scoring the goals on the football team were the ones that were getting that. They were considered the core of the team. Really cool. So I always wanted to be a striker. But I always ended up being put in midfield. Supporting the strikers, constantly put in that supportive role. It probably had something to do with the fact that I couldn't kick a ball straight to save my life. Well, just as I was distinct from the strikers on my school football team, so this outsider is still distinct in some way from Jesus' disciples. Just read verse 40 again carefully. Jesus said to them, in reference to this outsider, the one who is not against us is for us. The us here being Jesus and his chosen twelve. Jesus doesn't count this outsider as part of his personal group of disciples. He counts them as a man who is for them, but not one of them. Because they would still have a unique role to play in the service of Jesus' gospel. And we know that's true because we have the rest of our New Testaments. We have the book of Acts. With the exception of Judas, these disciples that we know from Acts would become Jesus' apostles. His strikers, his front men in the work of the gospel. Jesus will personally commission them to be his authoritative witnesses. And they will go on to lay the foundation for his church. As they testify to the truth that they saw in Jesus with their own eyes. And so bring the first Jews and Gentiles to repentance and faith. God would work by his spirit through these men. And men affiliated with them. To record the witness of the gospel. For our sake. So that we can believe it today. In his written words. That testifies to Jesus. Uh, This outsider wouldn't have that role. He wouldn't be an apostle. And neither are we. But still Jesus says, those who are not against us, referring to himself and the apostles, are for us. Like this outsider, we still have an important role to play for the sake of Jesus. But it will be one that supports the work of him and his apostles. The gospel that they will proclaim. Third reason. Anyone who serves in the smallest way will be rewarded. Anyone who serves in the smallest way will be rewarded. Have a look at verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his rewards. 
Jesus tells the disciples that whoever seeks to support them in their ministry, because they're doing it on his behalf, even if it's something as small as just offering a cup of water to them, to support them as they witness to the gospel, that small affection will mean great rewards. He knew he would be sending his disciples out one day, and it wouldn't be an easy mission, as they took the gospel to those who would receive it, and as they faced many who would reject them harshly. So for anyone who would just simply support them, well, they would be greatly rewarded. Uh, This is the only place in Mark's gospel that Jesus uses that word, reward. And in the other gospels, we know reward constantly refers to when being used positively to eternal rewards, that which is kept in heaven for us. Some think of these rewards as being a greater state of blessing when we go to be with Jesus. And others think the reward of being with Jesus for eternity will just simply be greater for those who have served and rejoiced in him all the more in the present. Either way, this reward is worth seeking because it will not fade away like the things that we enjoy now in this life. Jesus says the smallest service A cup of water for the sake of his apostles and the gospel they carry will bring great reward. How do we do that today? The apostles, they're long dead, more than 2,000 years ago. Well, we serve them the same way that the church has served them for the past 2,000 years. By promoting the truth of the gospel they carried. In what we say, in what we do. You don't have to be a gifted evangelist or a... Uh, a zealous church planter or a pastor or a growth group leader to support in this ministry. You just have to be willing to serve Jesus and his gospel with whatever talents and resources and time that God has decided to give to each one of us. And it's different for all of us. We all have a crucial role to play in the work of the gospel and building his church. From the smallest token of affection. A cup of water given in Jesus' name. What's the equivalent today? Or maybe meeting up with a fellow smacker who's struggling. Just taking them out for coffee. And encouraging them in the faith. Reminding them of the gospel. Urging them to remain strong in Jesus. Showing hospitality to a Christian couple who have nowhere else to live. Some friends from Smack One did that recently. So that some other friends in Smack One could continue in their gospel ministry without hindrance. Preparing refreshments each Sunday evening. I'm looking forward to that dessert later. That's a wonderful thing to do. It will promote us to stay back so that we can encourage one another in the gospel. Giving lifts to those who otherwise have no means of coming here to meet with us to sit under God's word together each Sunday evening. Inviting our non-Christian friends to a guest-like night, like the one coming up on the 16th of September. So that they might come under the sound of the gospel. All these things are really valuable ministries. And they're not public, and they often go unrecognized. But they're crucial. And Jesus promises to reward those who out of love for him, and out of love for his gospel, just seek to serve. In whatever way they can. We don't want to be putting each other down. Because we're not involved in a particular type of ministry. That we hold so highly as a church. 
Let's just do what we can, friends, okay? Be mindful. What we do in life for Jesus and his gospel, however small, as small as a cup of water, can echo in eternity, mean great reward for us as we remain faithful to him. But friends, sadly, the opposite is also true. What people do against Jesus and the work of his gospel can also have eternal consequences, but which are far, far worse, far more negative. Hindering faith in Jesus, well, that leads to destruction, not reward. Hindering faith in Jesus can lead to destruction. Look in verse 42. Jesus goes on. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Better to die. Jesus says, than to lead anyone of his people trusting in him into sin. You know, I don't think Jesus is being just creative here as well, using this illustration of a, of a millstone hung around such a person's neck, weighing them down in the sea until they drown. The millstone might not mean much to us today, but to the disciples coming from a Jewish culture, the millstone was a fundamental aspect and tool just for them to get by in life. Israel were forbidden from trading it in the law because they needed these great millstones to tread out the grain in order to make, as it were, their daily bread so that they could live, so that they could get by. Their bare necessity for life. So Jesus is basically saying here quite creatively, it would be better if the one thing that you depended on To get by in life became the very thing that tragically ends your life. That kind of horribly ironic death would be better than causing a believer to sin. Leading them away from him. Friends, sin should be avoided whatever the cost. Going against Jesus and his word for us. Jesus explains this by using some equally terrifying images in verses 43 to 48. He goes on, and if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus speaks of chopping off our hands, chopping off our feet, tearing out our eyes to prevent us from committing sin, friends. Because it's that serious. Our world doesn't see sin that way. Commonly, sin is viewed as something naughty but nice. Something for us as grown-ups to play with. Guilty pleasures. We have bakeries in KL selling sin by chocolate confectionery. Christina Aguilera has now got a brand of perfume, Red Sin. My friend Connor from university, he loved using the phrase, oh, that was so sinful. But he'd say it in a very cheeky way, as a bit of a laugh. 
when describing something that he had done that he knew to be wrong, but he wasn't that bothered about it really. It wasn't that serious. It's just a bit of sin, a guilty pleasure. My friends, our world might make a joke of it. But Jesus says sin is deadly. Avoid it like poison because it keeps people from his kingdom, from eternal life with him. It leads rather to eternal destruction. Sin leads to eternal destruction. And Jesus describes it in these horrific terms. Again, verse 43, to unquenchable fire. Verse 48, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. A place of everlasting torment and anguish. Of eternal misery. Forever separated from the love of God. All his goodness that we enjoy in part now in this life. This is a horrible image, friends. It is meant to make us feel sick to the stomach. In fact, when... Melissa and I were on honeymoon in Florence, in Italy. We saw an artistic depiction of hell along the lines of what Jesus describes here on the ceiling of a large chapel that we visited. And I noticed as we looked up at the ceiling uh, with the fellow tourists around us at this horrible sight of fire and sulfur, of torment and suffering, no one was laughing. No one thought that that was just a bit of fun. Just a guilty pleasure. Actually, we were all very solemn. Some genuinely had fear in their eyes, and that is appropriate, friends. The judgment of hell is the punishment that God has determined is fitting for us rejecting him as the Lord who gave us life. It's an awful thing to be instrumental in stumbling another down that road. Because see where sin leads, if we persist in it? Better to have your life end than to stumble anyone into this place. To lead them away from faith in Jesus, from hope of salvation, from his eternal rest. Better to lose your hand, your feet, your eyes, than stumble yourself into sin. Now, before we start taking out large knives and dismembering ourselves, make it clear Jesus doesn't mean for us to take these instructions literally. You know, if by dismembering ourselves we could actually somehow deal with the problem of our sin, then it would be worth it. We see what the consequence is. Well, better to go into heaven with one eye than into hell with two. But Jesus has already made clear that the problem of our sin, friends, is far, far deeper than what we do with our bodies. Sin is a matter of the heart. The problem of sin means we need new hearts. Let me just remind us of uh, what we saw a long time ago, back in Mark 7, verses 21 to 23. See Jesus' words here. He said, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, Murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. They make us unclean, unacceptable before God. The problem of our sin is deep down in our hearts, friends. In our deepest wills, 
desires which are turned against our Creator. And that reveals itself in the way that we behave against Him rather than for Him. Chopping off a hand won't fix that problem. We need a new heart. None of us can do that in and of ourselves. None of us can completely transform who we are deep down inside. Friends, that's why our only hope when it comes to sin is Jesus. Because he alone has worked to redeem us from its curse. Taking our place at the cross under God's judgment that we deserve for our sin. So that through faith in him and his perfect death, his sacrifice for us, we might be spared the penalty for sin that Jesus describes here. We might have the hope of enjoying life, peace, rest with God again. Which Jesus makes a reality in part by his spirit as we are reconciled to our Heavenly Father through faith in him. As we put our trust in Jesus, his own spirit comes to live within us. Works deep down to change our very natures. Turning us away from our desire to sin. To enjoy life under Jesus. God's king for us. And for those who are Christian here tonight, we know that that is a battle that rages. And it will continue to rage until the day we die. When we fail, we always go back to him. We always trust in the rescue that he has accomplished for us. But by his spirit, we are able to fight that battle against temptation to sin now. Apart from him, we cannot deal with the penalty or the power of our sin in our own lives. So friends, just here, can I ask you, if you are yet to put your trust in Jesus, if you think that by some means, somehow, in and of yourselves or through another path, you can make yourself right with God. Please stop. Please accept the rescue he has given us in his son. Because there is no other way. None of us can change the very nature of our hearts. Only God can do that by his spirit as we receive his son. He is the only way any of us can avoid this penalty and power of sin that otherwise leads to hell. For those of us who have received Jesus, well now that you have been rescued by his blood, don't have anything to do with sin anymore. Jesus has rescued you from its clutches. Don't tempt yourself or others down that path of destruction. Remember where sin leads when you're tempted. Again, what we do in life against Jesus and others who believe in him, however small, can echo in eternity, bring great destructions to not only ourselves but to others as well. So finally, instead we should seek to preserve each other for faith in Jesus, not for fear of judgment. Have a look in verse 49. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, I have a, a small confession to make here. It's quite sad 
When I go out to get the groceries each week for my household, one of the first things I'll do when I get to the supermarket is I will rush to the fresh meat section. Because sometimes, on really rare occasions, there are packs of Australian imported minced beef on special offer. I know it's very sad. Sometimes they're marked down as far as 75% off. Why? Because their expiry date is just around the corner. It just happened the other week. I was in the supermarket, went to the fresh meat counter, four packs of delicious beef, each less than half price, because it was going to expire the next day. And I, just, I was just so full of joy. No worry about it expiring the next day. I've got a lovely big freezer back at home that I can stick all that beef into. I can preserve it for months. Enjoy it any time. What a deal. I got really excited. It's very sad. Well, the disciples, they wouldn't be able to get that excited over cheap, fresh meat soon to expire, even if they were as pathetic as me. Because they didn't have large fridge freezers to keep their food from going off. But they did have one thing. They had one essential device to preserve their food for a limited time. Salt. They had salt. And they used salt as a preservative to keep food, mainly their fish and their breads, from perishing too quickly. As they rubbed those things with salt. Because it creates a hostile environment. It prevents the growth of bacteria for a time. And I think that's why Jesus, although it seems strange to us, is referring to salt here in these verses. You know, where, where does this salt come from? He's talking about the preserving qualities of salt. He's using that image in these verses. Getting his disciples to recall that which preserves what it comes into contact with. He starts to use his reference to salt very negatively in verse 49. Following on, everyone will be salted with fire. Referring again to those who eventually, tragically, end up in that place of destruction for their sin. That place he's just told us and his disciples to avoid at any cost. Well, Jesus says those who do end up there will be salted, preserved with fire. It's another reference to the everlasting nature of God's judgment. Those who reject that rescue God has given us in Jesus will have to face the penalty for our sin ourselves. And that will be unbearable, friends. Don't be one of them. But then Jesus gets much more positive in verse 50. He says, salt is good. And it is good. Salt was very good for them in those days, preserving that food that would otherwise go rotten so that they could get by, they could live. But see how he goes on. If the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? If the salt somehow lost its preserving quality, it would be worse than useless. Because as people used it, they think their food's being preserved when really it's rotting away. If salt has lost its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? In the other Gospels, this verse continues, it's, it's, it's good for nothing, throw it away. So Jesus says to his disciples, have salt in yourselves. Have a preserving influence on those who you come into contact with, particularly on one another. Not for hell, but for life. 
under Jesus. How would they do that? Well, see how Jesus ends. It's the application. Be at peace with one another. Preserve one another that you might be at peace with one another. His disciples in this chapter have been fighting and quarreling over who would be the greatest of his followers. Who would have those positions of power in his kingdom. They had rejected another man outside their circle who was genuinely serving Jesus. Jesus had just warned them that it's better to die than to cause one who believes in him to sin, given where sin leads. So all this bickering amongst themselves, all this self-centered fighting, if left unchecked, could be disastrous because they were just promoting one another in sin. They were stirring up jealousy and envy and hatred that would lead to further jealousy and envy and hatred rather than promoting love for Christ and humble service of Him. Jesus says to them, be salty, be salty. Act in a way that preserves one another for my sakes. Stop fighting amongst yourselves. Stop promoting sinful reactions in one another. No. Instead, they were to follow Jesus' example that he sets for them, ultimately at the cross, of loving, sacrificial service. Being a faithful disciple of Jesus, friends, means being salty for one another's sakes. Having that preservative effect as we encourage one another and serve one another in Jesus and point each other to him. Just as Jesus served us, counting one another as of greater concern than ourselves. With all the talents and all the time and all the resources that God has given to each one of us to serve each other in this way for the sake of his gospel. That's what Jesus says will bring true and lasting reward to us, his followers. What we must avoid at all costs is judging one another and promoting sin in one another. On the basis of how we serve each other in the gospel here at Snack, do we think of ourselves along the lines of, well, I'm not that important as a growth group because I'm not a growth group leader because I can't lead a Bible study. I'm not really that useful here. Or maybe in a more self-centered fashion, I'm more important than him or her because I do do that ministry or I do do this ministry and I do do X and Y and Z on a Sunday morning. That's the kind of dangerous attitude that we see in the disciples here. By promoting it, we risk stumbling one another into sin. They were just jealous of one another, squabbling over positions of authority. And that kind of behavior can have devastating effects in the church. Some of you may have heard of Rob Evans, also known as the Donut Man. He's an American guy, a very popular kids' ministry worker. His ministry was most popular back in the 90s. So uh, Melissa uh, watched his DVDs when she was a young girl. My son Josiah loves watching his sing-along DVDs now, and they're terrific. They are gospel-centered. They promote Jesus and love and faith in him. But Rob's personal testimony of late is not 
as healthy. He was part of a church that was clear on the gospel. But from 2002 to 2006, his family had to endure that church splitting four times because of infighting. Many of the church members were squabbling over positions of authority and power for the sake of being noticed. And as a result, Rob eventually decided to leave. And he started attending a church that wasn't as strong on the gospel, on salvation by faith in Christ alone. Now, I don't know for sure exactly where he is spiritually now, but it may well be that he no longer believes that trusting in Jesus alone is the only way that we can be saved from sin. That's what happened to him as a result of the infighting and the bitterness and the private, personal, selfish agendas that took his eyes off Christ, that took his eyes off the gospel and serving others in love and sought to seek something else. Friendships with others who were not as clear on the gospel. And so he was stumbled further and further into sin. Friends, what we do in this life can echo in eternity, whether for good or for bad, both for ourselves and for those who we relate to. I can say personally that I am really thankful for the humble, servant-hearted attitude I see in so many of us here at Snack 2. In all the ways that I see us actively seeking to point one another to Jesus, to remain faithful to him, to grow in our love and knowledge and faith in him, stirring one another on to love and good deeds for his sake. Friends, keep that up. Keep going. And as you do that, be mindful of the power of your words and your actions and your attitudes towards one another. Let's be salty. Let's be those who seek to serve, preserve one another in our love for Christ and our service of him and his gospel. As we serve in whatever way we're able to, pursuing that which makes for peace, building up our common hope in him. Let's be doing that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we do have an incredible gospel to rejoice in. You have, in your mercy and grace, given us a rescue from the penalty that we deserve for rejecting you as our Lord, who gave us life. We pray as those who have been reconciled to you now as our Heavenly Father, that Lord, as your children, we would be so careful to be promoting Jesus faithfully and love for him, both in ourselves and in one another. Help us to be so careful not to be promoting one another rather in that which would otherwise lead us away from him. Keep us from sin. Keep us from leading one another onto that path of destruction. Help us, Lord, by your grace, rather, to remain faithful to Christ and serving one another, preserving one another for his glory. We ask this for Jesus' sake.